Welcome to Episode 9 of Once Upon a Lifetime. Welcome back to Once Upon a Lifetime, Eunice Kennedy Shriver. I'm Alexis Love. I'm Christina with a K. And I'm Christine. So we had gotten up to Puny Uni and <laughs> Sargy Sarge, Robert Sergeant Shriver, I think is his mm-hmm. full name. But he is Sarge to everybody else. And they have just gotten married, tied the knot for what ends up being by far the most successful Kennedy marriage I think. Oh, easily. Absolutely. <laughs> I think so easily. So at the beginning of this episode here, she is pregnant with the first kid. Did pregnancy slow Eunice down? <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing slowed her down. No way. The woman is a force, pregnant or not. I, I feel like she'd already been sick for so much of her life. You know, she's in and out of hospital. She's just not well that pregnancy is probably the least of her physical concerns. Also, at this point, let's get a little read on where everybody else is. Rosemary Kennedy, the disabled sister, is a. She's been. She's had her lobotomy, the really tragic lobotomy that she had that disabled her even further, well, significantly further. And she's about to move from the house in north of New York out to Wisconsin, where Cardinal Cushing kind of found her a place with these sisters. And Joe Kennedy builds her a house on their property. And there's one of these nurse sisters who takes care of her most of her life. I think it was Pauletta. Just Joe was in charge of all of Rosemary's care. And in fact, no one in the family knows where Rosemary is except Joe. So Eunice is the president of the charitable giving foundation that the Kennedys run. And her father really did put a lot of faith in her in this effort. And he told her to really make a difference. You have to know everything about your topic. The thing that you are interested in doing in the world, you need to be an expert on it. And after a few years of her investigating everything that was to be known about intellectual disability, she knew most of what was out there to know. She met with all of the experts and informed herself so that her charitable giving was wisely done. Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the most interesting things about her is that she just went right to the source. She had this insatiable curiosity about what a problem was and how it could be solved. She went there herself. She did all of these go-see missions and and really kind of quickly got to the heart of an issue and kind of attacked it. She desperately wants to impress her father through her work here. So she then suggests that she and Sarge go on this fact-finding trip for the foundation. But Joe is really dismissive, and he's regularly somewhat dismissive of Eunice's ideas at this point in their relationship. So Sarge actually writes Joe a letter, and he says, the rebuff brought on her first stomach aches since July. It's her ever-present desire to be important in your mind and heart. As she often says, you are the greatest father in the world. You must know she has a father complex, as the doctors sometimes say. She takes the rejection emotionally and psychologically that you do not want her to do the things that others do. 
She needs your approval and commendation and enthusiasm for this idea of hers. The trip is only a symbol. Uh, how amazing that he really, he advocated. It is fascinating. And it's kind of key. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. part of explaining who she is, why she did what she did, the good parts, the bad parts. A lot of it is wrapped up in her relationship with her father. And Christina, I know, has a theory oh, about that, yeah. which is I, an excellent theory. <laughs> I, I was thinking about, I, I feel like all of the Kennedys had some like idolization of Joe, of, of dad. He was on a pedestal and they all looked up to him and Eunice did very much so. I mean, she was no different and maybe even more than some of the boys and, and the other kids she looked up and needed his, his approval. But I was thinking that Eunice was able to accomplish so much more because she also had like a higher authority. I feel like she also, like as high as she put Joe, she was also conscious of what God required of her. And so she felt like she wanted Joe's approval, but she also felt this drive to please God, to to, to do both. And I feel like that's why she was able to really accomplish what she did. Because she could have pleased Joe with like any number of things that she did and stopped. And that would have been enough for him because she did so much for a girl, you know, at that time, he would have been well pleased. But she just went so far above and beyond that I think that like her real drive was to really serve and please God. And you know, for her, that was that was everything. So it was like this two pronged thing. Yes, like all the Kennedys kind of had this idolization of dad, but mm-hmm. not all of them had the type of relationship with God that maybe put that in a little bit of a better order. I mean, mm-hmm. so Eunice is absolutely driven by the relationship with Joe and wanting his approval. And it's no, like, there's there it is right in the letter. Sarge mm-hmm. is writing to her dad. Oh, and I my think husband it's great. writing to my father. It's well, great. But like, yeah, I guess just different times. You know, I guess it'd be the same as like texting now or like sending an email or something. But, it but just... Eunice would never tell Joe to to that he had put too much pressure. Like Sarge, I think, had to be there to kind of diffuse that a little bit to kind of remind Eunice when to slow down or to tell Joe when maybe he's gone a little bit too far or what Eunice needs. Like he's just saying she just needs your approval. Yeah. And he could somehow Eunice and Joe, they both loved him. And and he was just such a great guy that like, you're right, like, if my husband wrote a letter to my dad or my mom saying, you know, like, what Christine, I, I would probably be a little bit annoyed. But I think in this case, these were Kennedys, and they were not going to help themselves. Like they needed <laughs> right. Sarge to sit there and speak human to them yeah. to kind of cut through all That's of that. So true. I mean, Sar- Sarge is often the human element in the Kennedy chaos. Like oh, yeah. he he's often that is often his role is to kind of bring things back to the the human level instead of the achievement level, and really they all I think love him for it. I, sure, I think they appreciated that about him. Like you know, much later when their kids were older, they were having one of their rough and tumble kind of Kennedy football games, and one of the Shriver kids was hurt and crying, and one of the Kennedys, one of the uncles, said. Kennedys don't cry. There's no crying. And um, Sarge looks at him and says, it's okay. You can cry. You're a Shriver. Like, it yeah, was just so right. sweet in, in the sense that he gave them permission to be human. Yes, fully and human. superhuman. Exactly. So. Yeah, and I think that it's not as if Joe didn't care about Eunice. I think he did care about Eunice. So someone just kind of had to tell him. 
that. Just put it on his radar. I, because I think Joe cared. He was always, even when he was out philandering, he cared, he cared enough to write his kids and, right. and be a part of the family. So I think that, you know, he appreciated, he trusted Sarge. And Sarge was the one who actually told him not to publish the eldest son's book because it was a little too pro-Germany for the times, you know, in the early days. And he appreciated that that Sarge kind of stood up and, and told him the truth, well, his it honesty. Has an outsider's perspective yes. from what could tend to be probably a very limiting Kennedy perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, like you live in this Kennedy bubble and right. do you really know what things look like? It could be like an echo chamber where they all just right. go around and exactly. around. Right. So Joe then is telling her, he gives her a little more latitude after this. And she sets out to become the expert that she kind of becomes. She is learning from the best of the best. And she's really in a primed position to make something big happen because the eugenics movement had already sort of had its heyday. The Nazis had already kind of see that all the way through that that <laughs> that idea. Right. People had had lost their taste for the whole eugenics movement. Right. And saw it for what it was. Yep, because we're post-war here. The medical world is beginning to wake up to other causes besides genetics for mental disability. So they've kind of stumbled upon alcohol use during pregnancy prenatal infection, trauma during birth, brain disease, chromosomal abnormalities, metabolic disorders, nutritional disorders, all of these things, they're starting to realize, oh, mental disabilities have other causes, not only genetic. So perhaps we could solve some of these problems beforehand. And then the third thing is that the educational movements were starting to think you have Maria Montessori, you have all of these new educational ideas floating around, maybe we can help the intellectually disabled. Right, just achieve their own fullest potential. Right. Through investing in, in their intellect into their whole lives instead of just... But in a kind mainstream of, way, instead of let's lock right. them away. Yes, yeah. because that so, was a norm. Yeah, And everything is sort of primed right now for Eunice, who is very interested in this, of course, because of Rosemary. She's interested anyway. This is a great moment for her. And she has the financial resources and kind of the support from the Kennedy family. And now she has the Kennedy Foundation, which they've started in the name of the oldest Kennedy brother who died. So she's sort of ready to hit the ground running. The only thing is the stigma is still there. It's not completely gone. So she's, this is the battle. The fight is to destigmatize intellectual disability. In all of her research, she ends up visiting a lot of these institutions and she's finding almost Dickensian levels of filth. Yeah, absolutely. Like descriptions from the 1800s about how the disabled were treated, basically like worse than animals. She she finds that, you know, a hundred years later, it's still true that there has been virtually no progress in this area. She writes, there was an overpowering smell of urine from clothes and on the fo- and from the floors. I remember the retarded patients with nothing to do, standing, staring. I recall other institutions where several where several thousand adults and children are housed in bleak, overcrowded wards of a hundred or more, living out their lives on a dead-end street, unloved, unwanted, some of them strapped into chairs like criminals. And this was more standard than not. And she was shocked. And she was horrified. And furious. Stark raving. <laughs> Absolutely. Stark raving mad. Rage. She, it's, in fact, it's this rage. People talk about it for years. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, Eunice, she, yeah, she was really fueled by a rage. 
Right. You could see because we watched a speech in 1987 she gives to the opening of the Special Olympics where she talks about the potential these kids have. And in this speech, she kind of warms up and she has that kind of clipped Kennedy accent. But as she gets into her subject, she's like, you have achieved this and you deserve that. And she's reading this out like she's angry that anything else would have been an option. option, Yes. Right. So this is the rage. It it pushed her, it drove her. And the thing about it is that it gave her this sense of urgency. And she already had a sense of urgency in life because she was a Kennedy and everything was always high powered all the time. Achievement based, moving forward, forward, forward. So she already had that going on. Her biggest fear, I feel, is that so much time had already been wasted that we could not afford to waste one minute more. Like the whole rest of her professional and personal life, she barely stops moving. She just is is driven to a degree that I I have never really so come how across. Does, how does this intersect? I mean, you've got a human whirlwind who's pregnant with her first child. Like, yes. Talk about that. Because how does she combine these two things here? Like the, the rage, the human whirlwind, the passion for this thing. But then I also have to be a mom, you know, and, and how does that play out? Yeah, I, <laughs> a I, lot of nannies and cooks. <laughs> Yes, yes it, it, absolutely that. Like she talks about herself being maternal, but I think she was maternal in a Eunice sense of maternal, maybe less though than you think of like the attached nurturing parent. Like she did not have her baby strapped to her. She was loving for sure, but I think she got the competent help that she needed, sometimes incompetent yeah, help. Sometimes. Sometimes. I mean, she says... She's giving a talk to moms at some point. I can't remember when. And she says, I think some mothers would do well to have some work outside of the home consistently while their children are growing up, because I think that it it would do them good, which would do the children good. And then she says, I always had reliable help. So I always was able to do that. Mm. I realize that's not available to a lot of people. Right. And I think that's at the point of her life where she's coming up against like the second wave feminism where Betty Friedan is writing about the problems of that women are facing with motherhood and saying that it's limiting. And Eunice is saying, no, you know, it's not limiting. You can still achieve things. And, you know, we'll get into her. Right. Right. So but there is, I mean... I will say she's not like Rose was. She's not the mother that Rose was. Rose was very professional in her mothering. Very methodical. So she did not have the index file. No. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. No index file. If Eunice could find a pen and a card in the same time. (laughs) She is an absolute whirlwind of a person. You know what she did with her cards? She pinned cards to her sweater, though. Like, she pinned notes to herself. That's hysterious. (laughs) Because she was just so scattered about those things. She would have the dinner dinner ingredients pinned to her. I would love her so much in the carpool line. Like, Eunice pulls up, and here she is. Like, she had a convertible, right? Yeah, she did have a convertible. Later, Maria Shriver says she would show up in the carpool line in her convertible with her hair all wild, pens and pencils sticking out of it, with a wet bathing suit on and a cardigan over it, covered in notes that she had pinned to herself of things she had to do when she got home. <laughs> that is like hot mess I right mean, there. She's like Miss Frizzle. Or yeah, yes, that's what I'm thinking of. And she has like various children and their animals yes. and their sporting equipment. Like it is the magic school bus, yeah. but it's like she's just 
Yeah, she's in it to win it, though. I mean, like, yes, and she's just kind of. I mean, so let's just let's dial it back to her early motherhood here. You, there's not a lot about it, honestly. She does have good nannies. She, yeah, you know what? She didn't write a lot about that aspect of her life. I think that was very internal. I bet she thought about it, but she wrote more about her thoughts on policy, her thoughts on the underserved, and very little about her personal life. As a mother, I don't think we had a lot of resources. No, to draw on. the kids themselves, her her own children, say they experienced a lot of absence. Um, both their mom and dad were really involved in lots of external things, so they were in and out a lot. However, at the same time, they say when they were around, the kids were completely even even at very young ages were very much included in their daily life. So when they would host dinners, for example, Eunice would be writing out the place cards. And these are dinners for either celebrities or heads of state or exactly <laughs> whatever heads of Very state important big, people, all these really important people. These are black tie dinners. Eunice would be writing out the place settings. There was always a place for Maria, always a place for Bobby, who were the two at the time. And then when Timmy came along, there was always a play, a chair for Bobby and Maria, and then she would designate a lap for Timmy. Whose lap was Timmy going to sit on? <laughs> so there was never any kind of hustling the children away into their bedrooms for these things. Mm -hmm. They were, and it wasn't a big show. She, you know, if Rose was very image conscious about the Kennedy image, Eunice was like, could not have been further from that. In fact, even at this point, Rose is regularly writing Eunice notes saying, you mispronounced such and such a thing. It makes you look dumb. Try oh, not yes. to mispronounce oh, the that. The helpful note, you know, you could almost have like a little Roseism calendar of the day. Oh, no. like she had all these little observations like, here are some gloves. You might not know how to wear them. This is how. Or I noticed that the ladies are wearing scarves this way. Maybe you should too. Just very So that you specific. look a certain way. And yes, yes. And so image. Rose is so focused, as always is going to be focused on the image. She just is. And Eunice is mission focused. She could care less about the image. She has got like this laser focus on the mission. Right. So at this point, they've moved into this apartment in Chicago, overlooking Lake Michigan, and they have an elevator going up and down into the foyer. And Maria, who's like two at the time, would be riding up and down the elevator just in a nightgown all day long. Just this was like a, a game, you know, play, play in the elevator. And Rose wrote one of these notes was... I think it, it looks bad. I think it would be if I walked into an apartment complex and there was a little girl in a nightgown riding up and down the elevator, I would think that family was quite strange. Maybe you can <laughs> stop her from doing that. And, you know, Eunice is just like, no, I mean, this is in this foyer of this apartment place. She has she literally has chickens and dogs and the kids have like little bikes and trikes that they ride around <laughs> that is on. So great. Yes. I mean, they're the units like could just could not be farther from caring about Let me the fit image. your mold. No. But, but I, that, uh, that seems like that's her whole life. I'm not going to fit is. your mold. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. she could care less about the mold. Yeah. But I, it's interesting because I feel like she's thriving on this energy. She's almost getting energy from the chaos. Yes. Know, and some people are that. like that. Yeah. Some people are just really chaos driven, you know? Do you think that she knew she wanted to raise civic minded children and the only way to oh. do that was to have them with her yes. in all of her civic minded? Absolutely. Yes. So like you will sit at this state dinner and see what it's actually like. 
Absolutely. to be part of this world. Oh, yeah. A thousand yeah. percent. And yeah. it worked, really. I mean, the Shriver kids are different than the Kennedy kids. That's a good point. She mm-hmm. did set out to do it. She did set out to include them. So even though she's not she's not a modern mother in the sense of she's not wrestling with being a working mom or not. No, they knew what she cared about. Yeah. Yeah. This is no this is no big stressor for her. Right. However, her kids did feel loved. And they felt like they had a lot of attention. They also felt a lot of absence at the same time. So it's not as if there was never kind of enough time with mom, but she was very attentive. She would um, come home from a trip and immediately like be running races with the kids. You know, I mean, she was just very mm-hmm. into a kind of physical and rambunctious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. At the park, when she would go to the park when the kids were little, sometimes she would actually take them to the park instead of the governess. And, of course, she had been in all of the society pages. So all the moms at the park know exactly who she is. Like, oh, that's a Kennedy girl. Oh, my goodness. You know, she's here at the park. And they'd all be intimidated for like a minute and a half until she got into the sandbox with mm-hmm. the children and was building castles and oh, yeah. talking to all the other little kids in the park and you know i mean she's just mm-hmm. a doer and, she but like real too i mean i think oh, that's very. so refreshing you know yes. to read about well i they wanted to have a picnic once and the grass was a little damp so she just flings her fur down and says well let's just sit on this yeah, yeah. but then the other side of this i mean she is such a whirlwind like maria at the park again falls off a swing and eunice is like it's all right you know shake it off kind of yeah And Maria keeps falling asleep and then waking up crying and falling asleep and waking up crying. And so one of Eunice's mom friends says, I really think you need to take her to the doctor. Eunice is like, all right, fine. So concussion. Not a concussion, a broken clavicle. Oh, no. Oops. Right. So another time Maria had like, she must have been a little bit clumsy or something, but she, not really. Any one of my kids could have done this 50 times, but she fell on the sidewalk and had this huge like gash in her face. And Eunice was like, oh, brush it off, moving on. When she got home, Sarge took her to the doctor because there was all this gravel, like, in, in her, her face. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Such a tough, that's, I don't know, there's just something so tough. Well, she had that kind of, like, kind of, like, ah, shake it off. Right. You know, as right. long as you don't cry, you're okay. Yeah. Not right. dead yet. So the other thing mm. I love in this Chicago house, and actually in most of their houses ever after, um, both Eunice and Sarge are involved in race relations. Remember, this is the 1950s. We're building up to the civil rights movement, and they are highly involved in trying to build bridges and also in youth welfare work. So in addition to all the animals and the children and the toys and the chaos, there's also almost always foster kids in the house. Pretty informal fostering. It wasn't as if they went through a system. It was a lot less regulated i guess yep so frequently eunice is working in this reformatory school she's helping to run their if you remember that's what she'd been doing in chicago she's the head of their development so a lot of times these girls would be transitioning from the reformatory school into their next landing place and there would be these lag times where they had nowhere to go and so eunice was constantly just having people into the house sarge said many nights i'd be sitting there reading the paper or pouring over work from the office and the doorbell would ring i'd go to the door and there would be a woman with a suitcase and a plaintive look on her face Uh oh i'd think another one of eunice's girls (laughs) 
So in and out are just all sorts of people. I mean, you really have all sorts of people and things happening. But she didn't just talk the talk. Like she took everybody and she was just so invested. I just love that about her. And of course, there were problems that would arise. And people said, it's not like this didn't cause problems. It was not all rosy. It's easy to sort of idealize it. Like, oh, that would be amazing if only we could all do that. But I imagine it was really challenging. But for her, for Eunice, this, it never phased her even. Right. All the girls were family. If the, if you were in the house, if you were in, you are in. Oh, they would have these parties at the house that were Sarge would come up with an idea, like an interesting topic to think about. And he would research this stuff. Then he would type up a one page or two page summary of things, ideas on this topic. And he would forward it to all the people who were invited to the dinner party. And then they would all come and discuss. <laughs> Sounds like you, Alexis. <laughs> This is why I liked it so much. Yes, I'm I like, these are my people. I'm waiting for my topic to come in the email. Like today, yes. we're going to discuss about... Eunice yes. Kennedy. They all came to Oh gosh, we Amoeba. are doing this, aren't we're we? We're literally That's what this doing is. this. Right. Oh, no. See, I Just found my people. Yes. Yes. They are my spirit animal. <laughs> okay. So there's a big shift in the foundation's work at this point, too. She begins to see that instead of simply giving the foundation money to build hospitals and houses for the mentally disabled, she wants to start investing in medical and scientific and educational research to maybe get at the root cause of some of these reasons for mental disability, which is a big shift. And she has Joe's full support on this. Joe decides this is the way of the future. This is where we need to start putting all of our money. So Joe's embracing this, this whole cause for the Kennedy Foundation. I find it really interesting because I feel like on one hand, he, I feel like he really did want a cure for Rosemary. I feel like he totally botched his attempts to work on this. But I feel for some part of him, this was like a deeply personal issue. He was really a, a tough advocate for this because he probably felt this in, in, you know, whatever kind of conscience that he had, wherever he shelved those feelings, like that was there. And secondly, I think, you know, as they say, like the political, the optics for this probably looked good too for his sons that he's pushing to campaign and to work in the polit- in the political life. He's thinking this is a fantastic opportunity for us to kind of do good. And I don't want to say that he's going to kind of like exploit this. This I don't th- think that's he, a hard word. Yeah, I think that's too, going too far. Yes. But he was not. I mean, if he was going to give money, charitable yes. money, he was going to get as much bang for his buck as he could. So he does want to mm-hmm. help. And they gave plenty of money to causes yeah, that yeah. didn't weren't big and showy, but also there were some that were big and showy. He, he understood PR. Yes, he did. He understood the value of good PR. So kind of like his wife. <laughs> she really shined in her little area. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, so this shift, Eunice's mental retardation research has no status in scientific circles. It's the stepchild or ugly duckling or forgotten one. Why? Because doctors thought that nothing could be done the children would all die very young anyhow, and that custodial institutions were the practical solution. But successful use of antibiotics is keeping the children alive, and research is coming up with new answers. Yes, the facts have changed, but the traditional attitudes and prejudices abide. 
These prejudices must be eradicated. We must prove that mental retardation is a fit area for scientific research. So this is when they give their first big grant, a million dollars, to the Massachusetts General Hospital to set up a lab to research metabolic disorders that could be at the root of mental disability. And this is the first time anyone has done this. And this is another big thing that Joe says, is he wants to put all this money from the foundation into this one area and make a real impact. He doesn't want it kind of frittered away on this little thing or that little thing. He really wants to do something new and big and make strides in this one area. So the focus of the money is a big deal to him, and it becomes a very big deal to Eunice, too. Also, because she's so visible in Chicago as a social mover and shaker, she is becoming an important ally to Jack as he is gearing up for the 1960 presidential race. That is where we're going to leave it for the day. When we come back, we'll be dealing with the era of Kennedy life that most of us think we understand already. But there's always more to the story. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. You can visit us at our website, onceuponalifetimepodcast.com, and join us next time here for Once Upon a Lifetime. Once Upon a Lifetime.